Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So first, I want to say, before we get into this topic, um, I want to dedicate the merit of our coming here together tonight to a dear friend who um, is in the last days of his his life. Uh, Jane and I just saw him uh, yesterday. His name is Don Flaxman. And um, you might say, first of all, it's a good thing to know that uh, when, you, when you're in the middle of something wholesome, when you're doing something wholesome, you can um, dedicate the merit of that wholesomeness to the welfare, the benefit of somebody that you really care about, which is a wonderful way first to not identify with your experience, oh, aren't we doing a good job? But it's like you're, you're, you're wanting to do the best you can so that uh, somebody else benefits. And it's more like the wholesomeness comes through, comes through you. And um, there's a kind of uh, inspiration in the, in the sharing. Uh, and you might think, OK, well, He's got it. His friend is, is uh, nearing the end, and that's nice, but it doesn't have much to do with me. But I want to just uh, say a few words that, um, about Don so you realize that he does have something to do with you. Uh, and it's kind of interesting that people affect other people, and we don't, might not even ever realize or know, but uh, Don. Uh, was one of the the key players in Spirit Rock being Spirit Rock. Uh, He uh, was the president of the board for mm, eight, ten years, something like that, or how many would you say? Six, seven years. But he was on the board during formative times, and he he was at the helm during some very key moments. And his, um, yeah, has, he was very wise. But, um, you know, when somebody is really wise, it's not just that they're smart. They're wise, and they make you feel smart, too. That, he had that kind of wisdom. The kind, he was, uh, he's still alive, so I'll say he, in the present. But one of the most unpretentious um, always making jokes about himself or about the foibles of the mind. He had, has an amazing sense of humor and um, just such a good heart. And he, he's one of my inspirations for Donna, for generosity. He was very successful in, uh, in business and finance, uh, uh, financial advisor and stockbroker and... Um, but his, um, his gift is that he would really do it as service. And he loved talking about the power of generosity. He was the best fundraiser, writer of, of letters that, that I come across. And he would inspire you by his own love of generosity to be generous too. It is, he had this amazing knack. It's like, oh, I want to be feeling like he does. It feels so good. And uh, uh, he was uh, a, a very close, um, like a big brother to my wife, Jane, who is sitting over there. Uh, raise your hand, Jane, so people know you. And uh, I, he, so she knew him even before I did, back in the uh, early 70s. I, I met him uh, 
after I met Jane in 1980. Um, and uh, yesterday when we were with him, it was so moving. Uh, he, he, can't, he's not, he can't talk, but he can hear. And he's, he was clear enough to be, he knew I was here. And when I came into the room, all of a sudden a big smile came on his face. And then it was kind of like you could hardly, I couldn't tell if he was there or not, except every now and then he'd kind of, I said, uh, is it OK if I chant? And he'd just go like that. And, uh, and, then, and then Jane saw him. And she wasn't sure if, if he was, if she knew he was there, if he knew she was there. And, uh, but she was talking with him for a while. And then as we were talking with his wife next, uh, in the next room, Carol, and we, I said, I'm going to go back and just say goodbye to him. I said I'd say goodbye. And we hear he started to get out of bed, which kind of blew all of our minds. And, and we said, whoa, where are you going? He's kind of in, in two worlds. But it was like he, it seemed like he wanted to say goodbye. And um, so uh, beautiful, he just, he just kissed, we kissed, I kissed him on one side of the, his face, and then Jane was going to kiss him on the other side, and he turned around and just right on the lips. And, <laughs> and then, uh, and then I was going to kiss him again on the side, and he turned around and he said, "It's so beautiful." And then, uh, as we were as we were leaving mm, uh, from afar, as we were right at the entrance in, uh, of his room, and he was on his bed, and. Uh, she said, I love you, Don. We both said, I love you. And then he just he could barely do it, but he just put his hands up to his mouth and just went like that. So um, that's what a lifetime of practice will do. And that was the, the teaching for me right there. Uh, he's going out in the same style that he that he lived his life. So I want to dedicate whatever merit that we have here together for his well-being and his passing and, and have just such a, a deep appreciation for all the merit that he has accrued over the years in touching so many people. So the other thing that I want to say is that I did leave my notes and my book at home. <laughs> it was a great talk. <laughs> and I'll just see how much I can remember. It's been uh, really fascinating. Uh, you know, I figure I better, I better know what this guy is saying. Uh, I saw Paul, uh, Jane and I went to a day long. He led at Spirit Rock on faces that was just fascinating. He, he has studied faces um, as a scientist and um, has distilled all these different facial muscles when it goes this way or that way, and there's, you know, s spent decades on this. So he's, uh, he's used by um, uh, the government, U.S. government, uh, for, um, you can't put a lie uh, past Paul, put it that way, and uh, for for tracking uh, people's what people's internal experiences are and and what their emotions are, um, and uh, he's quite an extraordinary man. And he, besides studying the facial expressions, he studied the emotions underneath the facial expressions, and had this. Um, desire to speak with the Dalai Lama uh, and, and have, uh, he has been in a number of meetings with the scientists and the Dalai Lama, but he wanted to, wanted to have a one-on-one, -on -one, uh, a few hours with the Dalai Lama to compare their theories and notes on emotions. And the first time they were together, they talked for, um, I think it was about f uh, four or five hours over, over a few days. And then they, and the, they had this instant rapport. It's like, oh, where have you been all my life? And just really fast friends. 
And then um, to follow up, he thought he was going to follow up the conversation with a, a closing kind of comparing notes, uh, I think a year or so later. And um, they spent another uh, couple of hours over a, a conference that they were all at. And then Paul said, um, well, I'd like, if it's OK, I'd like his holiness uh, to review these before they, uh, they are published. He said that to, uh, to the Dalai Lama's uh, scheduler. And, uh, and, the, uh, and the Dalai Lama heard. And, uh, and he said, who's writing the book? And, uh, and Paul said, well, I, I'd like to say it's uh, both of us, his holiness and the Dalai Lama. And then he was told, oh, well, in that case, you should come to Dharamsala, and we, we need to go over all of these things in great detail. And that was the, so he thought it was the start, it was the end, but it actually, they talked for another, like, 30 hours uh, on exploring the most intricate um, exploration of emotions. And the book is a kind of a compilation, distillation of their conversations, plus a few sidebars here and there. And it's quite fascinating. So I'll see what I can remember of the, the first few chapters that I read. Mm. And it's put in the context, the, the book is called Emotional Awareness. It's what emotions are, how they can confuse, and how they can be used for, um, in a constructive way. You know, there was a book, perhaps you're familiar with, called Destructive Emotions, that was edited by uh, uh, Daniel Goleman, conversations with the scientists at the Dalai Lama, including Paul Ekman and Richie Davidson and um, John Kabat-Zinn and all those, uh, those guys. And, um, and that was about the, the, the difficult side of emotions, how they can create a lot of suffering. And in, in this one, he's, he's looking at the destructive, or what are called afflictive emotions, and also how they can, how they can be turned around into constructive emotions. And actually, next week, Paul is going to be coming here, particularly focusing on uh, conversations around forgiveness and compassion. Um, first, the difference between afflictive emotions and const uh, afflictive or construct destructive emotions and constructive emotions. Um, actually, before that, just about emotions in general. They are so tricky. They're so slippery. You know, you've been doing mindfulness practice probably uh, most people here for quite some time. And we know you can pay attention to the breath. You can pay attention to sensations. You can pay attention to sounds or images, body moving through space. You can pay attention to thoughts. You can pay attention to emotions or feelings. Most of the others, we can, we notice when we're not confused, when we're, when we're not lost in thought, we know, oh, here's the breath, or here's a sound. And there's a real value in that. But where we get so lost, is in our relationship to experience. Our, our emotional life filters, imposes on top of what's happening a reality, and that's where we get caught. And even when we're paying attention to the emotions, we think we're paying attention to the emotions, but often don't realize there's an emotional response on top of what we're paying attention to. The, the Buddha talks about this as having, putting a second dart on top of the first one, especially when it's a, an unpleasant emotion. 
So there you are, angry, and there's some kind of judgment. Oh, gosh, there's anger again. Damn it. Or, oh, I'm so confused. What a, I am just lost again. And in our daily life, emotions are really what both motivates us to do very beautiful things and what gets us lost in doing some very unwholesome things. We say, oh, I just, I lost my head. You ever have that, that feeling? You know, what was I thinking? How many times have you had that, that feeling? What was I thinking? Well, beyond what you were thinking, you were feeling something that completely colored your reality. And you lose your rational mind when you're in the middle of emotions. Um, a few things that I, I recall about an emotion uh, that, that he said, he had six different um, characteristics of an emotion. And I think I could just remember four or five of them. But mostly, we don't realize when we're in the middle of an emotion until after it's been activated. We rarely choose to have a certain emotion. And he makes the point where we, when we do choose it, we're, we're going for entertainment. Oh, I think I'll go to this comedy. Or, no, I'm in the mood for something really sad. Or, for some people, I don't know why. It's not my style. You know, I, uh, I think I'll, I'll go for a good horror show right now and have the, scare, the, the daylights uh, scared out of me. You know. Emotions can be very entertaining. But mostly, when we are swept up by them, one of the characteristics of them is that we don't realize that we're in the middle of them until we're in the middle of them. That they get activated very quickly, and that there's not a rational decision to have a particular feeling. And usually, the, the trigger is a very brief appraisal of what's happening on an unconscious level. If you're very attentive, you might, you might be aware that, oh, when that person gave me this subtle look, it just did something inside. Or they yawned as I was talking, and I felt like a complete jerk or a loser. We don't realize it until afterwards. Sometimes we can track and say, oh, that's when it started. That's when it got activated. Um, and that another aspect of emotions is it gives a signal. It can be read, like Paul spent his lifetime learning how to read emotions, that there is a physical concomitant, an expression that usually comes across us, you know. Even for the poker faces amongst us, there's some kind of a, a signal, whether it's facial or otherwise, that um, tells there's an emotion going on. It's also, and this was surprising to me, short-lived. Usually it's short-lived. Now you might say, well, not in my mind. I've been bummed out all day today. But actually what happens is that, at least with emotions, is that there is an episode that something gets triggered and there's a, a period where you're in the middle of it and then it kind of, then it subsides and then it can be activated again. So if you say, you know, I've been bummed out all day, it can be that you've had a number of episodes of that kind of an emotion. Or, I've been angry all day. He says, you're not really angry all day. Not 
as far as what he's defining an emotion. But he does make the distinction between emotions and moods, which is a whole different thing. He says emotions have their value. They're, they're an expression, an interaction with the world around us. But moods, he says, it would probably be better if they weren't part of our human repertoire. <laughs> but unfortunately, they're part of the package. That moods, unlike emotions, can last for hours or even days. And often, they're biologically based. Not always, but often, you kind of just wake up you know, if you're not, if you're sleepy, or if you're under stress, or if you're having particular repetitive thoughts that activate emotions again and again and again, they can lead to a general way of relating to the world around you. And that's where things get a little bit tricky because then you are predisposed to a particular emotion getting activated. You know, that, and one of the ways that that works is particularly, for instance, in a, somebody who's prone towards, uh, towards depression, is that they can have a thought that's a negative thought. And then the next thought is, oh, I know where this is going. And they go down the rabbit hole. And that mood is a kind of underlying, very um, familiar, ready-to-be-activated place of home, which can be um, a problem. So he then talks about the refractory period in an emotion. This is a very interesting thing to understand and really is one of the, the keys as far as um, meditation and dharma practice applied to these theories. While you're in the middle of an emotion, there is a period in which you have lost your rational thinking, and everything around you is funneled into confirming your particular perspective as that, as that emotion gets activated. So for instance, if you're feeling um, low self-esteem, I don't know if that's a, if you're feeling an emotion of unworthiness. And, it's, and it becomes triggered. I, I, you'd have to speak with him to see if this is actually a mood or an emotion. But when the emotion gets triggered, then everything around you is confirming what you're seeing. And you can't see otherwise. And generally, you will act from that place of faulty perception and do things that you will probably regret. This is in the destructive emotions. Oh, I didn't define destructive and constructive. Destructive emotions or afflictive emotions, and the, and the, the Buddha talks about this. He talks about afflictive um, emotions in a number of suttas, are emotions that are harmful either to yourself or to the other person or to both, if there is an interaction. If there's, you can have an afflictive emotion that's just centered within yourself. But one that causes harm. This is an afflictive emotion. A constructive emotion is defined as one that, is, um, that brings about a sense of well-being or is uh, a, a positive feeling for yourself, and if there's another person involved, for the other person as well. 
or at least you're not causing harm. Like you can, if you're, say, getting your jollies by putting somebody else down, this is not a constructive emotion. But if there's a, a genuine emotional intelligence where there's something where you both win, there's a, both of you win, this is a constructive emotion. So in the refractory period, while you're in the middle of that emotion, everything is filtered to confirm your perception. And then uh, when you come to your senses, uh, you can wake up and perhaps stop the activity if it's a destructive activity, if you're just really getting into somebody and getting on their case. You know, maybe you have this with, if you've got a kid and you've, you've gotten really stressed and you're losing it, and you just know it's their problem. If they would only get it together, everything would be okay. And then you realize afterwards, whoa, I was kind of out there, wasn't I? And then if you're a wise person, you'll say, I was really out there. I'm sorry. Um, but the idea of the refractory period is that if you can shorten the refractory period so that you aren't as prone to, do, to lose your head, then you will be uh, a blessing to you and everybody around you if you can bring some kind of wisdom to the circumstance. And then there is the refractory period, another aspect of refractory period, where you at some point realize you're in the middle of an emotion. This is, this is what, uh, what the Dalai Lama calls um, you know, higher level in, in he, there's, he gives the example of the kindergarten level where after you've blown it and you look back and you say, oh gosh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, he, said, he said, this is very good. And in fact, the Buddha has this one discourse where he says the same thing. After you, when you realize you've said or done something that's hurtful, look back and see, oh, what did I do? How can I learn from that? He says, this is a good thing to do, to just start where you are. Then there's the next level, what the Dalai Lama called the high school level, where you're in the middle of the emotion and you're realizing, you're saying, whoa, I'm kind of losing it here. Uh, I think I need a little time out. Or I don't want to say something that I'm going to regret and I'm just uh, too caught up. I need some space. He says, this is really good practice. This is fruits of real practice. Then there is the uh, uh, graduate uh, level, the PhD level, where, and the Buddha talks about this in the same discourse, where you feel the impulse arising. You start to see, I'm going to lose it. Do I want to say what's on my mind? And be justifiably right and then regret it for the next two weeks? Or can I zip my lip and just cool it for a little while? This is very high level of practice where you have a choice, where you give yourself a choice. Then what the, uh, the Dalai Lama calls the postdoctorate level, <laughs> where those thoughts don't even arise. Sounds like something good to aim for, but uh, don't, don't give yourself too hard a report card on it. <clears throat> so first, uh, before I go on, there's a few other things that, that come to mind, like how practice affects this and some of the things that, uh, that I can recall. But just for you, just go inside for a moment and uh, think of the times you're prone to lose it, if that ever happens to you. you know. 
Just because uh, he says the more you can identify your particular patterns, the more you have your awareness out for them. And if you pay attention, you'll just be more possible, it'll be more possible to catch them in time. When do you usually, when are you prone to lose it? And you might think of a situation and play the whole movie in your mind. What sets it off? Is it something external, a look that somebody gives you, a feeling when you're in that particular environment? A thought that arises that somehow hooks you before you even realize it? What triggers it off? And then from this bird's eye view, just track the process for a moment. From the moment it gets triggered to when it gets activated and there you are in the middle of the words or the, the actions, what goes on there? Be very kind as you reflect on this. It's what we all have to deal with. How long is your refractory period in your better days. And uh, what helps bring you out of it? He talks about a number of different ways that we can come to our senses. What helps interrupt and bring you out? Or is it just time? Or another thought, another understanding? Or what do you do to get out of it when you're lost? What, I, what I'd like you to do, both to make this more your own and uh, to um, share some wisdom with, uh, with, with us all, is to just turn to somebody near you. It can be two or three, and just share a little bit. You don't have to go into the details of, oh, this person every time. You can if you want. But uh, just for a little while, to track your particular emotional trajectory uh, and, uh, and be a witness for somebody and then uh, with a sense of humor and compassion. And then uh, uh, I'll tell you when to switch. So just take about five minutes for this. And please do that right now. If you need a, a, somebody to do it with, raise your hand. It can be a threesome if you want. Anybody else who needs a partner?
If you, if you haven't switched, make sure the other person gets a chance. Staying, right? Okay, start finishing up. There's a lot of energy in here. You're, you're such an emotional crowd, you know. It's beautiful. Yeah. Much better than listening to me. Uh, for me, anyway. <laughs>
Uh, that was just great. So um, any, uh, any insights that you, that you got about your trajectory or your refractory period or getting lost or, or found? Yeah, uh, in the process of getting upset and then not reacting to the upset, it's like I am also making the world, I'm modeling the world that I want to live in. A and, I, I mean, and the reflection comes back to, you know, when they say you don't sit for yourself, you sit for the whole world. And, and that's, that's one of the places where I just see it so, so clearly. Mm, beautiful. And that's, that is one of the, the points that is made, that you, you affect your environment around you. Uh, in fact, uh, in, the, in the book, there's a, a number of references. They do this one uh, experiment with um, uh, Paul is here in, in, the, in the Bay Area, and he, he asked uh, this monk, Matthew Ricard, who, who's written a book on happiness, who's one of the, the, the guys that they hook up for to see what you know, the far end of the human capacity is, right? This guy, he's been practicing, he's been a Tibetan monk for decades and been practicing compassion practice. And when you're, they had these, this experiment where they took two different people, two different professors at UC, one a very congenial guy, and one, uh, they wanted to get somebody who was a very difficult person. And they measured the differences in their conversation with Matthew Ricard and wanted to see what effect he could have on, on them. There was a control of a guy who, they, they, they wanted to keep on talking. And when they, when they had to stop, you know, they said, oh, we have to stop now, but the person's blood pressure and, and other, other signs were just kind of so relaxed and enjoyable. The other uh, guy, actually, Paul got one, uh, he picked the or most ornery professor who had so many problems and conditions that, he, that he was, it was too impossible to work with. They never did the experiment. And then they picked a substitute. And this fellow, <laughs> the second guy, who was real, he was difficult. But at the beginning of the conversation with Matthew, he, was kind of, he wasn't smiling at all, and it was just kind of like, you know, very walled. And after, um, within 15 minutes, he was relaxed and smiling and enjoying his conversation. And afterwards, he said, there was just something about him. You just didn't want to get into a fight for some reason. <laughs> So we, we, ha we can affect our environment just by who we are and how we are. So, any, anything else that comes up? Oh, Patricia. Yeah, here, it's Michael. Uh, this is more of a question just to take a, a, a little bit of a challenging uh, um, pose on this. As, as I noticed, I tend to be not reactive, and I tend to be nice, and I tend to sometimes swallow anger, um, you know, for the pleasant and the equanimity, and then I think about it, and then I say so sweetly, darling, would you mind cleaning up the dishes or something like that, you know? And the, it, just yesterday, for various uh, uh, circumstances, uh, my husband and I really got in a snit, and honest to God, real, we were kind of for a couple of minutes yelling at each other, and, and then we started laughing. But it, it, it felt so good <laughs> for both of us. And so I'm, I'm wondering what's the place of anger or truth-telling, but whatever it was, and the patterns changed. It took a sword, at least temporarily anyway, it took a sword to break through that pattern of kind of sweet niceness, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, and he says, uh, they both make the point that anger can be uh, can be useful. Um, and the Dalai Lama makes the distinction between anger and hatred. Mm. Anger can be a motivator if you do things, and this is basic Buddhism 101, 
Your thoughts are one thing, your, your actions are another. And if you cause harm through your actions or your words and, uh, and they can't, um, and they just lead down to that more destructive place, that's not useful. Hatred always corrodes, as, as the Dalai Lama says. But that anger has its, all the emotions are, par, are a range of who we are. And it's not so much not to have them. This is not to be a zombie, but to see how we can transmute where they're coming from so that it can be for your own benefit and for the benefit of others. And that sounds like that's what happened. Yeah, it's great. OK, uh, we just have a few more minutes. And I wanted to say a couple of things. Um, um, one is that emotions can be, uh, we can be genetically predisposed, different temperaments, uh, and different cultures also, different ethnic groups, but also there's the, um, the training that goes into those grooves in our mind, in our uh, neuro neural pathways getting set up. One of the things that really struck me that I, want to follow up on is um, how we can be trained to have um, an almost uh, a very long refractory period where you will be doing things that you weren't, that you didn't know you were capable of. And I uh, checked on this I was, uh, as I was reading it, how people can be trained. And I checked and I got some statistics that I, uh, that I recalled. In World War II, um, soldiers, they found out um, that uh, about 75% of the time, soldiers in World War II would not, uh, would not kill, shoot to kill. And in fact, about 20 to 25% of the time, there was combat where they were actually trying to kill. This is a, there's an, an actual response where this happens. Uh, unless, I would imagine, if somebody is shooting at you, it might, uh, that would provoke that. But at least these are the statistics. And it became such a problem that, um, and it has always been that way. The same in the Civil War, they found that uh, actually uh, a very, they would find lots of loaded muskets that that were, um, yeah, not shot. After World War II, they did some training uh, and realized that you, know, you want to have an efficient soldier. So through training by the Korean War, it was up to about 50% of the time that um, soldiers would shoot to kill. Through training and reacting and just these behavioral modification techniques, by Vietnam, um, the number was uh, up to 90%. And now we have all of these, uh, this instance of PTSD, because we're going against the very instinct to not kill. And the training is so efficient and potent that um, there's a huge price to pay for going against our basic reactions. But you can unlearn that. And that's one of the, the beauties of mindfulness practice, being around like-minded friends, interrupting. The more that you see, the more that you're able to uh, cut off that automatic response, the more you can be aware of your emotions, and the more compassion practice and things like that. All of these things have a tremendous influence in shifting around what seems to be completely out of our control. So hopefully uh, next week, Paul is going to be going into that in more depth when he talks about forgiveness and compassion. Um, and we'll end here, and we'll do a closing loving kindness practice. And first, again, want to uh, bring you, Don Flaxman, into the circle and wish you the best on your journey. Feel all the goodness and the love and 
the wholesome acts that you've done in your life, may it carry you on your way. And then sending yourself these kind thoughts, breathing in a benevolence from life and letting it touch you. May I see clearly, see through my confusion. May I access all the goodness and the love and the wisdom inside and and share it well. May I see through my fears and deepen my compassion. And then including everyone here in our circle of benevolence and out to all beings everywhere. May all beings see clearly through their confusion. May all feel the goodness and love inside and share it well. May all see and realize their true nature. And may we share any goodness and merit that we gain from being here together for the benefit of all beings. May all beings find happiness and peace. Thank you very much. <coughs> Have a really good week and come on back next week when Paul will be here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.